You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Happy Wednesday. How's everybody doing? From coast to coast to coast, Sam, Chris, and I here on The Big Show. We are uh, spending our morning doing a couple of things. Following along with interest, the interest rate hike, as Canada raises the main interest rate 0.75%, it is now 3.25%. If you have a mortgage and you are paying off your mortgage plus the interest, trying to get down the your payments, This is triggering, as you know, the trigger rate, which means basically you're just probably paying off your interest rate now. That's all you get to pay off. There's a lot of Canadians right now that are not paying off anything more. And they may not be done. It could go higher. Higher than 3.25%. How many times, just off the top of your head, if you're following your own money, how many times in 2022 has the key interest rate been hiked? Anyone? Anyone? One, two, three, four, five. You imagine? Five Times in 2022, the interest rate, that shows you two things. The fire engine of interest rate is trying to put out the inflation fire, and inflation, which was over 8%, is now 7.6% and falling, is still a major fire. So you get that monster hike in July, and now another 75 basis points now. (laughs) is big. Growth is going to drop, but hey... The, the bank's job is to get inflation at between 2 and 3%. They're at 7.6%. So they're cooling off the economy. They're dousing it. Maybe even too much. I spoke to the former governor of the Bank of Canada, as you, you heard yesterday on, on the show, Stephen Polaz, and he said, look, it's already cooling. Maybe they're pouring too much fire, too much water on the fire. But as they say, if your house is on fire, do you ever say to the fire department, I think you're using too much water. You don't, and that's why that analogy sucks. Economists like to say that, but the job of the bank is to calibrate the amount of water. Because they don't want to overcool it and crush us. Get us in a stagflation or a mild recession. But here we are, so that's the big news. We'll dig into that. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for your rate? What does it mean for the principal that you're paying? Can you pay down just the interest, or can you get the principal of your mortgage down? Most people will be on the other side of that. So that's the news. We're following that. Christian Freeland, the finance minister, just finished speaking about it. And I don't know why politicians do this. Like, she's like, you know, the summer I spent, I visited, you know, eight provinces and 21 towns. And, and, and then she said, 
you know, if I was still a journalist, she was a good journalist, my headline would be Canadians are working hard. There is no such thing as a headline like that, Minister. There's no, no headlines. Cana- of course Canadians are working hard. Do you think you're going to come out and say, well, it looks like Canadians aren't working that hard. Canadians are busting their asses. They have two jobs and three jobs and they can't make payments. And they're one payment away from groceries and inflation's killing them. Yes, the headline is Canadians are working hard. That's not news. What people don't want to hear is you reconfirming with some anodyne bumper sticker that people are working hard, they want to know how we can work less hard and make ends meet. Hey, hands up if you want a politician to tell you, you know what, you're working hard. I traveled the country and my headline is, Canadians are working hard. What? You don't need to travel the country to find out that Canadians are working hard. That's what she just said. I just listened to it. If I was still a journalist, I would tell you my headline is Canadians are working hard. What? I don't even know if we have the clip. It literally just happened a minute ago. You don't need to spend your summer traveling across the country to tell all of us how hard everyone's working. Stores are closed up because of COVID. People are that bu- Yes, the job market's out there. Yes, there's jobs available. People are busting their butts. There's 7.6% inflation. People's pocketbooks are getting burned. It's getting eaten. It's like a moth eating your sweater. Don't tell Canadians, I, I, I've, you know, this is amazing. I, I, I travel the whole country, and guess what? You're working hard. We know that. Do you know what you're elected for? Tell us, like, if I was running, wouldn't you want to say, I'd like to let people have a better life, and maybe you don't have to work that hard. Maybe your quality of life can go up. Maybe you don't have to wake up at 3 a.m. and crank up the fan in your room because you're worried about your mortgage payment because you're in a sweat. How you're going to make ends meet. I want a politician that tells me we are going to get inflation down. Now, I understand the causes of inflation are not just Glo- uh, are not just national, there's global consequences. I know what's happening in England. I heard Vladimir Putin today talk about cutting off oil and gas the gas to Europe. I understand the pressures from that war. I'm not stupid. I'm not going to reduce this to a political wedge issue. I'm not going to pretend that this is all at the feet of Christian Freeland, but a lot of it belongs at her feet because she's the finance minister. What are you going to do to help us drop prices and make life easier and help the global supply chain? What's our role there? And it's a fair question to her. She doesn't have to have every answer, but she's got to have some, and it's got to be more than one thing. We were fiscally prudent in the last budget, and Canadians are working hard, and Canadians understand that. What are you doing? The facts have changed. The bank is clearly saying this is an emergency. The bank signaled today, the central bank signaled, we ain't done. Here's another 75 basis points. We're pouring water on the inflation fire. The inflation fire is, is a big deal. We've got to hike our key benchmark rate. It is a, it's a five-alarm fire. And then you hear from the finance minister and the fiscal side. It's like, you know, everything's good. Everyone's working hard. We'll see what happens. What? 
It's like two fire trucks arrive. One says, holy cow, your house is on fire. Hook it up. And they're pouring water. And the other's got like a, a glass of water. And they're like, I think they don't do it. And they toss it up. No. So I think they got to get in the game on that. And I know they're meeting. But I think the biggest challenge, and I know there's going to be a conservative leadership race. And they'll find out the new leader. But if you are a liberal in charge right now. This, the, the economic question is the big fire. Make no mistake about it. Keep your eye on that ball. Oh, we, got, we have a minute here. I just want, I've been railing about it. Here's the clip of Christopher Freeland, just so you can hear it. And if I were still a reporter, the headline of my story would be, Canadians are working hard. Ah! Sorry, that's not a headline. You know what a story is? It would be like, Canadians are hurting, and here is my, as a politician, here's what I'm going to do to help. My headline will be Canadian are working hard. Of course Canadians are working. Hands up if you think, actually, uh, Minister, uh, uh, let me challenge you on that last point. We're actually sitting on our asses doing nothing because life's good. What? No. People are working hard, and they're worried. So get, get in the game, federal government. Now, the other big challenge, and, and we're going to cover this next, is what's happening, the manhunt in Saskatchewan. And we're going to go over the names of the victims. And, and honestly, this is heart-crushing to me. But there are two things, another challenge for the federal government and the provincial government, and it's going to be policing and parole. Two questions about this manhunt. Policing, is there enough policing in rural communities, and how did this guy get out on parole? That's next. Paying close attention to your money, your world. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to The uh, Big Show. Lots coming up. Heather Butts, our national news reporter, is going to join us. She's on her way to the James Smith First Nation. This is sort of ground zero of this horrific stabbing. The manhunt continues. Today, the RCMP released the names of the deceased victims. Like one family, the Burns family, six people were murdered. And the and actually, the the, the chief of the of the nation, James Smith Cree Nation, is a burn. So he maybe he's lost his family. We don't even know. It's unbelievable. So we'll go over that. The latest. And I said the questions around policing. How did a guy with fifty nine convictions uh, ditch his parole and no one was warned? And of course. Uh, uh, parole issues and policing issues. Do they? Is there more resources needed? Uh, the war room is standing by. Uh, we're getting the latest from the uh, the government's uh, caucus retreat. Elizabeth May. She's trying to recapture her uh, co leadership of the Greens. So she'll drop drop by. So we got lots on the on the big show today. But as you know, the biggest issue that affects you. That, that affects every single person listening. Every single one of you is the Bank of Canada raised its overnight interest rate by point by 75 basis points. So that means the key interest rate has gone from 2.5% to 
That means if you're paying a mortgage, your rate, you may now not just be paying off your principal and your interest, you may just be paying off your interest. And this isn't the end of it. Now, Krista Freeland, the finance minister, was just asked what she's going to do on her side because clearly with inflation at 7.6%, the bank is recognizing there's a like a five-alarm inflation fire. And on the fiscal side, Krista Freeland said, you know, we have a prudent budget, we're getting support. And then, and, and this is driving me bonkers, that's why I'm, I'm sort of hitting on this. She said she traveled the country all summer she went to eight provinces and territories and 21 different pe- towns and she spoke directly to people and she said it was so informative and here's what she learned listen and if i were still a reporter the headline of my story would be canadians are working hard thanks minister You traveled the country to tell people when inflation is 7.6% that they're working hard? That's your headline? Your headline should be, what are you going to do about it? So to find someone who actually can tell us more than just deliver us a bumper sticker over our mouth to tell us to shut up and be happy, Jim Stanford, the economist and the director of the Center for Future Work, joins us. Hey, Jim, first of all, I miss you. I haven't talked to you in a long time. I hope you had a good summer, but boy... I'm, I, I'm, aren't you glad you're listening to the radio show today, Jim, to find out that the headline of Christian Freeland's summer tour in the midst of inflation and, and interest rates going up is Canadians are working hard. I, I bet you didn't know that. I'm inspired, Evan, and I'm going to go out and even work harder now. Did you know, like, I didn't think Canadians were working hard. I guess I should have gone on tour. I guess you didn't either. Like, who would know Canadians in the midst of the biggest inflation crisis in 30 years are busting their asses? But apparently the finance minister just discovered that. Well, and we should keep busting our asses because that's how we're going to build our prosperity in the long run. And unfortunately, I think that's going to get harder and harder to do with these interest rates and all the other headwinds we're sailing into. All right, let's talk about it. Um, let's talk about first the Bank of Canada hiking the key yes. interest rate, 75 base points. What does it tell you and what's the consequence of it? Right. Well, it's not a surprise. Everyone knew they were going to hit and hit hard today. Again, uh, the fifth incre- increase in interest rates uh, since March. Uh, We've gone from 0.25% to 3.25%. That gives us about the highest interest rates in the industrialized world, frankly. Now, other countries uh, are are raising interest rates as well. The Americans uh, will probably do that again. We're not sure. Um, And it's a very aggressive uh, move. uh, And it's kind of, uh, you know, we kind of went from one extreme to the other. For the first few months as inflation was picking up, uh, the Bank of Canada, like most economists, frankly, myself included, expected inflation to be rather transitory. And there's still reasons to believe that's the case. Many of the initial uh, spurs for inflation are, in fact, already moderating things like energy prices, world food prices, uh, shipping costs, etc., So they kind of sat back for the first few months, and they were criticized by some for not moving fast enough. Now they've, like, rediscovered true religion, and since March they've been really putting pedal to the metal in terms of uh, increasing interest rates uh, fast and strong. So another three-quarters of a percentage point today, which is a big, another big hike. And uh, we are seeing the impact big time uh, in the economy. So what's the winners and losers when this happens? 
Well, uh, higher interest rates, of course, mean it's harder to borrow money, more expensive to borrow money. So anything that depends on borrowing is going to get hit fast, and we're already seeing that. So uh, consumer durables, for example, most people borrow money when they buy a new car or other major purchases, uh, down uh, substantially 12% in the second quarter uh, GDP numbers that came out from Statistics Canada last week. Residential construction investment, whoa, down 28% at an annualized rate in the spring quarter. So we know that the the housing situation, which of course was you know kind of a bubble situation for years, has suddenly popped, and we're going to see big downturn uh, on the residential side. Uh, we also obviously consumers are going to be hit. If you have debt now, whether it's a credit card or your mortgage, you're going to be paying more for that debt, which means you've got less to spend, less disposable income to spend uh, on other stuff. So normally, uh, Evan, we expect about 18 to 24 months for interest rate changes to have a full effect in the economy. But uh, frankly, we're seeing it faster. Um, And I'm not sure if if that's maybe because consumers were more indebted when the whole thing started. Uh, Maybe it's because, you know, these are are very sharp upward movements in interest rates. So people are, are, you know, uh, taking a, a big breath and changing their behavior quickly. Whatever the reason, we're already seeing very significant negative impacts of this in the real economy, and we're going to see more to come. Speaking of to Jim Stanford, economist, director of the Center for Future Work, that's the monetary side. So the banks take an aggressive action. They want to drop inflation back to their target between 2 and 3%. It's at 76 Then Christian Freeland walks out and, you know, kind of gives us the status quo. What on the federal side, the fiscal side, what should they be doing and what are, what, what's their strategy? Yeah, I think uh, you raise a really important point, Evan, because for many years, the kind of the, the operating assumption for most economists was let the Bank of Canada handle inflation. That's their job and no one else should you know, really worry about that. Everyone else does their own stuff. The kind of idea that monetary policy is the major tool for inflation control. And I think that was a mistake uh, because this, this round of inflation is quite different than previous ones that we have seen in the past. The cause of this inflation is not too much money chasing too few goods. That's the kind of classical textbook story. We have got a whole set of unique factors, most of them related to the pandemic because of supply chain disruptions, because of obviously the global energy price shock, because of shifts in consumer behavior during the lockdowns and then after the lockdowns. In none of those cases is it clear that the standard response, higher interest rates to cool off the whole economy and reduce spending, uh, is really the appropriate medicine. And this is where we do need, I think, a broader suite of measures uh, to take a look at uh, how do we strengthen supply chains? How do we increase supply? If it is a problem of constrained supply, rather than just saying everyone has to tighten their belts because there's not enough supply, why don't we actually look at ways we can improve uh, infrastructure, improve the ports and transportation system, uh, find other ways to boost supply of uh, critical commodities, including everything from housing you know, to childcare, frankly. Those are ways that the government could play a role in addressing the inflation, the, the true causes of this inflation. And yet, we ha- I mean, I got a minute, we haven't heard much change yet. It's like they're kind of riding this thing out. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the meantime, uh, people are a little scared out there. People are nervous. Europe's about to hit a, a drastic situation. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, America's you- uh, potentially already in recession. If you use the conventional definition of a recession, their economy shrank for the first half of this year. So yeah. I, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better, unfortunately. And the UK that's got a new prime minister, is a, you know, they're going to hit 18% inflation. And I don't, I, 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 I warn any politician to say, you know, compared to the UK, we have it pretty good. Mm. Don't tell Canadians that 7.6 is good because our friends and brothers and sisters in the UK are, are facing 18%. 
that ain't going to cut it. Um, hey, listen, um, we're long overdue, Jim. Uh, ah, I love talking with you, Evan. Thank yeah, you very much. You're, for you're so informative, Jim. Stanford economist, director uh, of the Center for Future Work. What a great guy. Uh, Jim, stay healthy and, and really appreciate you joining us, Jim. Take care. Thanks, man. Uh, we're going to go to Saskatchewan next. Heather Butts is on the ground. She's he- heading to James Smith First Nation. Um, this manhunt is just it's, it's terrifying. We go right to it next. Where you meet the people behind the story. It's the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the uh, big show. Um, We are going to go to Saskatchewan. We do have breaking news right now. Um, We are listening to a press conference right now of Mark Arkan, his half-sister, was killed and murdered in the attack. Let's just listen in. Heather Butts is also reporting she's listening in. Let me just play you this. This is Mark Arkan. His half-sister was just murdered. Let's listen in. So this is our sister, uh, Bonnie Goodvoice Burns, his oldest son, Gregory Burns. And in the crowd today, we have uh, Bonnie and uh, Brian's... uh, Three other boys, Dason, Mason, and Grayson. Today we're going to do a three-step process here, which is actually talk about our, our family members, about the people they were, so people understand uh, the loving, caring person uh, that Bonnie was. First and foremost... We have two communities that are very close here, which is my community and a lot of my family are in here, uh, aunts, uncles of Bonnie uh, from the Muscogee Cree Nation. We are close to the James Smith Cree Nation people uh, through sports, through activities, through ceremony, through, through everything that we've done in our lives and right now it's a difficult time for for our families the second piece that we're going to talk about is i know a lot of people are out there wondering what happened well honestly we don't know i'm going to try to piece together what i know because i was at the scene on sunday with brian and we're going to talk a little bit about that and uh some of it will be a little bit harsh to hear, but we're going to speak the truth. The third thing is the impact of what's happening to the other three children that are here with us today, and Brian and his family, and the support uh, that we need for a GoFundMe page to to help with some long-term trauma here. So that's kind of the three-step process. Uh, I've got my communications person here, Sean. Uh, I'm not sure if there wants to be a scrum after, but I'm asking the media to be respectful of, of who I am. It's not about me. Please don't use my title. As far as I'm concerned, it's just a title. 
This is about our family. This is about the horrible, senseless act that took one of our family members away, two of our family members away. What I want to talk about is Bonnie Lee Goodvoice. She's a member of the Wapaton Dakota First Nation. She's a, she was a Dakota woman, and she still is a Dakota woman. In 1990, it's a long time ago, she, uh, she met one of my crazy buddies here, uh, Brian, and I don't know, but I was talking to my uncle the other day, and I, I said, yeah, I was talking to Brian, and he's like, who the heck's Brian? It's like, we all know him as Buggy, right? Because that sense of laughter that you're hearing right now is, is what Bonnie and Brian did all the time was laugh and joke and, and those are the things that we need to remember they've been married for 15 years uh, she moved to the community of James Smith Cree Nation they've got a home they've uh, started raising their family uh, which is Brian's uh, late son here uh, Gregory who is 28 years old we've got Dason who's uh, 13 years old and uh, Mason I think is 11 and uh, I was going to call him by his nickname Pablo Pablo, Pablo yeah. <laughs> Grayson <laughs> so I don't know how he got that name but we know him as Pablo right so <laughs> this is how it is in our country uh, where we grow up it's all about relationships it's all about family it's all about nicknames it's all about laughter it's all about joy it's all about humbleness one of the things that I can say about my sister and and Chuck's daughter and our niece and our relative family came first her family we always talk about in First Nations culture the, the matriarchal society. She lived that. She was always at home with her, her children while Brian was out there working, playing sports. She was always with her family. She was the caretaker of her home. They had a beautiful home. And that's what, what we want people to remember her as. She's not a victim. She's a hero. And what you'll hear secondly is why she's a hero. And when we talk about Brian and Bonnie, it, it goes unnoticed for all the work that they did in their community of James Smith Cree Nation. Bonnie was working at the school for the last few years, providing for her family. She was also foster parent, She was also a uh, foster parent of two kids in her care at the time of this terrible incident. So raising about six kids and all the numerous kids that she helped before. She always put other people before her. That's what we want people to remember. We want re people to remember how she made you laugh, 
how she told stories at Christmas functions, at kids' birthdays, at weddings, at celebrations. That's the reality. And when we talk about what Brownie brought to our community, the things that I noticed the day that I was at uh, the scene was everybody came up and talked about what she did for the James Smith community. She was married into that community. She would help volunteer at cooking, at doing whatever she had to do, and she'd make Brian come along all the time, right? Because they did things together. And when we, we see this and we listen, we have to remember those things because the situation that occurred shouldn't happen to anyone. No one whatsoever. You know, I sit back and I watch and I listen and I, and I watch these things on TV and I'm like, man, oh man, how did this happen to our family? Why did it happen? We have no answers. But what we can talk about is what family means to all of us and what Bonnie and... I don't even know why I keep calling Gregory Gregory because his name's Jonesy. That's how we knew him as Jonesy. That was his nickname. And when we think about... Myself, as her brother, I was hardly in my sister's life. She had her family, I had my family, uh, but every time our side of the family got together, she was always there at Christmas and that kind of stuff, bringing the boys, and I'd always argue with Pablo about who's the boss is, and today he told me he's the boss, and still doesn't give me a reason why, but <laughs> I understand, and I take that direction. Because the most important thing to my sister and you to our are listening and to the brother of one of the victims, two family members in the Burns family lost. They don't know how it happens. We're going to take a short break. We'll come back with the family's discussion. Authentic voices, real conversations. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the program. Uh, breaking news right now, Chris. Um, there is a press conference for the first time from the family members of the victims. I'm going to name the victims and we're going to go back to it. These are the victims in the horrific stabbing mass murder. Just think about that. It's not... These are people that have to come face-to-face with their killer. These two alleged killers, the two suspects, one's dead now, but 10 people in the small town of uh, James Cree Nation and Weldon, two connected communities. A 23-year-old, six people from the Burns family, 23-year-old Thomas Burns, 46-year-old Carol Burns. We're learning about these names. The RCMP's just released them. 28-year-old Gregory Burns, his brother, talking right now. I'll get to that in a minute. 61-year-old Lydia Gloria Burns, her brother. 
Bonnie Burns. Actually, it's Bonnie's brother, 48-year-old. 66-year-old Earl Burns. Look at that. Then two members of the Head family, 49-year-old Lana Head, 54-year-old Christine Head, and then 49-year-old Robert Sanderson, the alleged killer. I don't know why he's even in the list there. He's a murderer, allegedly. And 78-year-old Wesley Pedersen in Weldon. Now we're listening to the family members who are tragic, tragically wounded forever. And they're speaking right now not only about Bonnie, who was a foster parent raising six kids, described as a hero by her brother, but also about Gregory, whose nickname was Jonesy, 28 years old, murdered. Let's listen in. It was a beautiful home. It was filled with love and care. And the children always came first. When we talk about that, we talk about our nephew or the son, the grandson, 28-year-old boy. His life taken away from us. This young man had opportunities to, to work. He was fully employable. He had lots of tickets and opportunities. He was a great kid. He worked in the community, he built houses, he, he he did whatever he could for his, his family and trying to help his mom and his dad and take care of his, his three brothers. And those are the things we want people to recognize and remember. During this difficult time, we're just climbing a mountain now as a family, both of our communities. And that mountain is the devastation of what happened to our family member. And what it's going to take to heal from senseless acts as this that happened to our community, our family, our province, and our country. Let's not focus on what the reasons are. Let's focus on people that were taken away from each and every one of these families, our family, because that's our focus. We've got to focus on what we can do to help other people, and we've done it. This has affected our, our treaty territory and other treaties, Treaty 6 territory, the lands of which you all gather on today. And when I think about what the future looks like, my sister, our family members, they'd want us to move on. They'd want us to, to heal, but to never forget carry love in your hearts, to carry compassion, to be united, to think of other people, 
we've shed a lot of tears in the last couple of days. But at the end of the day, we loved our sister, Brian's wife, Chuck's daughter, our niece, our nephew, our grandson, because they loved us too. And that's what we want people to remember. As difficult as it is to not show emotion, we're hurting. We're broken, but we're not defeated. This process of a family is something that is rich in all of our First Nations people. When we look at our community as Musket Lake Cree Nation, the James Smith, James Smith Cree Nation, and all of our friends that support us from all the other First Nations and the city of Saskatoon and all the small towns, we say thank you for that. We thank you for your generosity, for your kind words, for your support, for your guidance. Because this is a difficult time for our people. It's a difficult time for our family. I'm going to kind of get a little bit off track here and talk about the day. Today is Sunday. day that I was at home with my family sleeping and these alerts kept waking me up and I looked at my phone and I had messages from my family and a long serving family member of ours has always taken the reins to, uh, to be the leader of our family but me to call him through a text, so I did. And he told me what happened to my sister and to my nephew. That morning I couldn't think straight, and I was worried about the rest of my family, what was going on. So I told my wife, I gotta go. And I went alone to the crime scene. There I was phoning my niece O'Brien and asking him where he was. He was doing something that him and his family loved, which was horse racing out in another First Nations community that, that weekend, providing for his family. Driving to the community that day was the longest two hours of my life, not knowing what to expect. In the back of my mind, I thought about my family. What are they thinking? Hope they're holding each other, hugging each other, telling each other they love them, 
Those are my thoughts. When I got to the community, I went to the community health center and I asked where, what, who. And one of the community members said, we're going over to see your sister. Brian had phoned me and said, this is where he is. And for the people to know and understand this, it's probably a natural feeling for all of us to feel anger. That was my, that was my first initial thought. And it's okay to feel those feelings, but those feelings aren't going to solve anything. Listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is the Evan Solomon Show. I've gotten a lot of advice over elders the last couple of days of to grief, to grieve properly, and the support that I have for my family and all the people inside and outside of this room that have contacted us and sent their well wishes and they're thinking of us. And I basically told everybody, we've got to think of these three little boys that are here with us today, and Brian, and Chuck, because they need our support. As much as it's hard for us to grieve, for a lot of people sitting in this room, you didn't know my sister. You didn't know my nephew. You don't know my my family, and that's okay. And the reason it's okay is because it's a community coming together. The old saying goes, it takes a community to raise a child. And whether we're First Nations or non-First Nations people, we all got to come together to raise children, to make sure they all have a quality of life. And that's what my sister stood up for. That's what my nephew stood up for. One of the most things that has traumatized me through this whole process was the visual scene that I seen that day. When we got there, it must have been about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. This incident happened probably anywhere from 6 to 7 in the morning. My first reaction when I got there was to go see my sister and my nephew. And touch her and hold her. Couldn't do that. None of our family could do that. Right, right outside of her home, she was killed by senseless acts. Her son, she was protecting her son. She was protecting these three little boys. This is why she's a hero. She's a two, true matriarch. First Nations way of living, which 
as our women take care of our, our homes. The most shocking things right now is, is this piece. And please, I'm going to ask the media not to do this, because it's not right. What you're about to hear is very serious. told you about my sister and my nephew. The oldest boy, the second oldest boy, Dason, was also stabbed in the neck. He's here with us today. He survived. These children have seen everything that day. And they sit amongst you as people. And that's what we want you to know and understand. And I'm asking for the respect. Please leave them out of it. This is a serious time for our family. But when you think about what I just told you and the nonsense of how this act has destroyed our family, how can some, somebody do this to women and children? Words can't express the pain that we're feeling. trying to piece it all together. Me and Brian were there all day watching, trying to get to our sister, asking the RCMP, and I have a lot of respect for the RCMP because what they did that day of processing the crime scene, forensic units, coroners, they had a big job that day within that community. As you've all heard, there was multiple scenes. There was three people at this scene, at my sister and Brian's house. That day, and can't get it out of my mind. Just to fast forward things a little bit, that night I went home. Wife asked me how I was doing, I was okay. Tried to sleep that night and I woke up in the middle of the night just screaming, yelling. Because what I seen that day, can't get it out of my head. But I have to let people know that because this is how terrible that scene was. And I said this earlier, this is about, it reminded me of the movies and to me this is not a movie, this is real life scenario about what happened to our family. My interpretation of what happened is what I'll give you today, but let me be honest in saying this, we don't really know what happened. We just know that family members were killed in their own home, in their yard. 
that's what we know. When I got there, one of the ladies came up to me and I asked what happened. My sister was trying to phone for help. My sister phoned the actual lady we were talking to and I can't, I don't want to send her, I don't want to say her name, the, the other one. The one that was helping us when we got there. Oh, Rhonda. So one of her good friends named Rhonda. Bonnie was actually trying to phone her and Rhonda said I was sleeping. This was early in the morning. Because Rhonda was part of the the community response team that goes to situations that happen like this in the community. Couldn't get a hold of Rhonda, she said, and got a hold of this other lady. And I'm not going to mention her name because the media has this already. But that lady went to, to our sister's house to try to help her. And her, and, her, and her son and her family. And she got killed. And when I spoke to, to Rhonda, she was first on the scene, I believe. Sean was also there too as well, to my understanding. And that's so why I said, we're just trying to piece this together, but it's not... Please don't listen to rumors, to innuendos. Please don't assume. When, when they got there, Jonesy, our, our nephew, our son, was laying there. He was already deceased. He was stabbed several times, I believe. My sister went out. tried to help her, her son and I think she was stabbed two times and she died right beside him the lady that came there to help was an innocent person trying to support her community trying to help and she died right right there as well in the driveway. Things happened on the inside of the house that we have no access to right now because it's still an active crime scene, I believe. These kids, Brian, his entire family, left with nothing. They're left without their IDs, bank cards, nothing. Everything's still in the house. We got, when we were trying to focus and see what was going on, trying to piece all of this together, we watched our relative lay outside for four hours while, this is when I got there, from probably seven in the morning to I think the body was released by the coroner by five in the afternoon. Those four hours that I was there from one to five, probably the longest four hours of our lives trying to make sense trying to listen to people of what was going on and try to figure things out and understand why
trying to make sense of it. And when we think about why this happens, only people in that house knew what happened. Bonnie's not here to tell her story. Jonesy's is not here to tell her story. the story is we have three kids that survived this horrific uh, trauma within our family these two young boys woke up to screaming not being not being able to help one one of the young boys was hiding behind a, a high chair watching everything unfold. I think after when these gentlemen left or whatever happened, I think they had to pass by their mom and that innocent lady and their brother laying outside. And they were taken away to family within the community to hug to make sure they were safe a 13 year old boy was taken to hospital he spent the night and that young boy right now is, is angry he's traumatized so when we talk about what happened to the media, to everybody that's going to watch this, we don't know. And we want to leave it at that. We need the we need the RCMP to do their work. We need to let we need to let the professionals do their work, and we need to support that work. We can't point fingers. We can't blame. Can't look down on people just got to remember these were victims of a serious crime that's affected our family because the serious nature of this is something that I've never thought of and I said like I said to each and every one of you just a kid from the reserve, man. Just a, just a young boy. Never thought going through this, just like all of my other relatives sitting in this room. We didn't want this. We didn't ask for this. As our family sits amongst all of you, we are still continuing to help other families that are affected by this. You are listening to the first press the conference strength. of the uh, the families of the stabbing the mass murder, the brother of Bonnie and uncle of Jonesy with, with details of what happened. Um, we're gonna take a break. Um, I know, I, I thank you for listening. That's important.
time in your car doesn't have to be time wasted. Join the evolution of talk radio. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. It is Wednesday. That means it's time for the war room. Let me be perfectly clear. Putting out misinformation. And we hear that. Misleading politics. What's really important here. Spreading it online. Unequivocally. The war room. In the back-to-school war room, at the front of the class with his hands up, with a new article about Quebec, always with something to say, the reach for the top champion, Tom Mulcair, CTV political analyst and former NDP leader, at the back of the class because he already knows the answers and he's bored. He's also the jock, and he's one of those rare jocks that also gets top marks. Tim Powers, Chairman of Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data. And joining us inside the war room today, our special guest, the champion of many, many battles, Laura D'Angelo, the Vice President, National Strategy and Public Affairs at Enterprise Canada. That means you must know Jason Leader, which means we send you our sympathies, Laura. (laughs) Well, thank you. I accept them gratefully. (laughs) Uh, We do acknowledge uh, that our dear friend Zane Velji is not here, still mourning the loss of his dad. And and Zane, uh, if you're listening um, to you and your family, we're sending you love. Um, This is a big week politically. The Conservatives will have a new leader. Um, The Liberals are trying to reconfigure um, what they're going to stand for in the new year. And, of course, uh, there's a Quebec election. I want to start with inflation because, uh, Tim, I'm going to start with you on this one. Um, Inflation today, the bank, of course, cranked up rates again, 75 basis points, 30-year high inflation there. And Christian Freeland said, okay, yes, I I, I get that the Bank of Canada sees this as a five-alarm fire and they're doing everything they can and this is going to hurt so many people. But she's been traveling the country and and she she emerged, guys. And and this is breaking news, Laura, Tom, and Tim. And I don't know if you knew this. She toured the entire country and she went to eight provinces and she went to like 21 cities. And if she was a reporter, this is the breaking news. You probably don't know this, but this is what the finance minister discovered while people are struggling with 30-year high inflation. Cue it. And if I were still a reporter, the headline of my story would be, Canadians are working hard. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa! Wow! Thank you, Minister. That's what we've been waiting. I didn't know that, Tim. And so, well, Pierre Polyev is likely to ascend, and there's inflation. The big headline for the finance ministers, Canadians are working. Thanks, Minister. Is that enough, Tim? (laughs) Well, Evan, no, it's not. Jeez, that's so bad. You've articulated earlier. I mean, listen, Kershia Friedland, nobody doubts her brilliance. Very smart woman. But sometimes when it comes to communication, not only does she have an issue with tone, she's also deaf when it comes to the struggles of the audience. The liberals who are in Vancouver doing their uh, cabinet retreat um, say, you know, they're not thinking about Pierre Polyev. They're focusing on the economy. Well, this, if this is the best they can do on the economy, Pierre Polyev is going to feed them their lunch. I mean, oh. This is why the Liberals, you know, they're wondering why Polyev is connected with Canadians. Even some of us people from the Conservative side wonder that, too. But the one thing Polyev has done well, even albeit a bit gimmicky, is get into the mindset of Canadians and figure out 
their angst and pain, and he's speaking to it. Mm. Rashia Friedland is not, and that's a major issue for the government. Yeah, listen, Tom, uh, look, I, I don't care how often Pierre Polyeva goes to his basement to wax philosophical about reclaimed wood that he's put up in his basement in some mysterious and crazy... He's talking about inflation, and 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 Christian Freeland's response today was, like, baffling to me. What do you make of the Liberals? Are they ready to handle the economic troubles ahead? You know, there's always a time in the life of a government when ministers have been disconnected for too long. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, she tries to boast that she's been out there talking with ordinary Canadians. You know, I've, I, I've met some of them. And then she goes, <laughs> yeah, they're working hard. It, Poiliev has tapped into something. And the interesting news of some of the more recent polling is that he's not only drawing older conservatives, he's starting to talk to younger people on the university mm-hmm. set. The very funny posts that he did in English and in French where he's sitting in a breakfast restaurant talking about the price of bread and the price of milk and the price of juice and eggs and so forth. Uh, frankly, great communications. Uh, you can like it or not like it. You can like the guy or not like the guy, but it's really, really good political communication. And then when poor Jean Charest's campaign with our friend uh, Tasha Carradine, she decides she's going to have a fight as to whether or not Nanaimo bars actually have flour. Okay, penalty flags all over the field. I don't know how many nanoseconds it's going to take for the Conservatives to actually announce the result on Saturday, but if they drag it out any longer than they have to, they're going to be losing voters. This thing, I think, is decided. Yeah, and Laura, let, let me bring you in. Um, look, governments, after a while, start serving you pablum and try to sell you that it's steak. That was not steak today. There was nothing there. That was crappy pablum. Um, do the liberals have to come up with something more than anodyne statements that Canadians are working hard? Like, we know that. Canadians are barely, they're getting their wallets chewed out by the caterpillar called inflation. I mean, there's no arguing that that was a communications failure. But I'd be lying if I said otherwise. Do I think the liberals are despite their communications on it, understanding of how hard things are right now? Of course, I don't think anyone anyone is in any doubt about that. And I think that they are legitimately talking about how they're going to try and help Canadians, um, to, you know, today and, and this week at the Cabinet Retreat. But they need to start being able to connect with Canadians on a one-to-one level and show Canadians in their press conferences that they understand how difficult everything is right now. And frankly, finding a way to connect the way Pierre Polyev is on a one-to-one basis about the difficulties in buying your groceries. You know, Tim talks all the time about political communications and how important they are. And this is just really important right now that you need to speak like everyday Canadians. Use real words. Speak the way I would speak to my parents about it. Don't speak to journalists about it using lingo. Yeah. And and Laura, just one more thing. I mean, it's not just the words. So don't they have to, I mean, they have to have a strategy. On one side, Canadians are like, something must be wrong because the Bank of Canada has got, you know, a five-alarm fire going and they're hosing down the economy with high interest rates. And then you look at the Liberals like, yeah, we're just sitting, this isn't a global issue. Do they have to put some stake on the table? I mean, they do. It is on far, far smarter people than me to determine what that stake is. But definitely, I think that we need to see in the coming days some some big action from the government about affordability. 
um, whether that's housing, whether that's healthcare, there need to be some changes in you know the coming weeks and some measures that the government can do for Tim, sure. Tim, are they vulnerable if, if Pierre Polyever and we'll, we'll swing into that because okay. Mr. Polyever is likely going to win. We could talk about the path uh, in the last couple seconds, but we, we but but like, are they ready for a Pierre Polyev? I don't think they are, because I think uh, they're still scratching their heads to how did this guy win. Uh, and I think you see that in their inability to come forward with, with, with action. I mean, frankly, I'm scratching my head on it, but I understand now better why he did win and the threat he presents. So until they figure that out, they go with the same liberal playbook and the you know triumphalism just in front and center. That's not the path right now. Maybe later on, but they've got to find a way to define Polyev and communicate with Canadians in a way that extends empathy or they're going to have more trouble. Tom, I got him. I thought we had two blocks. You have one block. Tom, in the last minute, why should we care about the Quebec election? Well, the same way Quebecers cared about what happened with Doug Ford in Ontario, the two provinces together, 60% of the economy of the country and 60% of the population. It's, it's important. At the same time, Legault is slowly but surely doing separation by stealth. Quebecers do not have the same rights and freedoms as other Canadians, whether it's linguistic rights, minority uh, religious rights. It's something that everybody should be paying attention to because it's a well-oiled plan. And again, talking about Ottawa, they're completely asleep to it. Neither David Lametti, our Attorney General, nor Trudeau seem to understand that it's their job to defend the Canadian Constitution that is being frustrated day after day by Legault, who is running circles around them. So, yeah, people should really start paying attention to what's going on in Quebec. I wish we had more time. Usually we have two blocks. We obviously had the special of what's the, about the tragedy in Saskatoon. But Laura D'Angelo, come on back. Uh, Vice President of National Strategy at Enterprise. Tom Mulcair, Tim Powers. Uh, obviously, we'll, we'll, we'll chat again next week. Uh, thanks to all of you. Uh, enjoy the early September. we got to take a break. Thanks to a shortened war room. But coming up, this is a great story about poachers, polluters, and politics. This is amazing. Coming up. Authentic voices, real conversations. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Let me tell you something. In a country like Canada, poaching is a problem. It's a big problem. Now, now I don't, you might think poaching. Yeah, wildlife poaching, fish poaching, these are big you know, my son is, I've told you all, he just got back from a 52-day whitewater canoe trip in the Arctic. They saw caribou, muskox, wolves, moose, belugas. It's a country teeming with wildlife. But you got to get a license to hunt. And there's a new book out called The Wildest Hunt, True Stories of Game Wardens and Poachers by Randy Nelson, a fisheries, uh, poachers, polluters, and politics, a fisheries officer's career. His latest book is The Wildest Hunt. He's the most decorated fisheries officer in the history of British Columbia. The book just came out a couple weeks ago. He's donating the profits from the book to the Game Warden Museum. Uh, Randy's an accomplished athlete. This guy's done 200 competitions, 10 marathons. Uh, so this guy knows his way around, and uh, Randy joins us now. Hey, Randy Nelson, great to have you on. Hi, Evan. It's a pleasure to be here. 
what I like is like I've run marathons. I'm like, hey, I, I feel like Randy. I, I, I like to, to be in the bush. I, I'm like Randy. Then it's like um, he's been attacked by a grizzly, stabbed, and almost had his head taken off. I'm like, I'm not like Randy at all. What are <laughs> How dangerous is your job? Well, uh, it's, a, it's, it's extremely dangerous, and so not many people realize that. Uh, a, a game warden's job is three to four. You have three to four times a chance of getting killed on the job being a game warden um, or conservation officer as you do a police officer. And that can be through shootings. It can be through drownings. You know, you're out in the wild all the time. Everybody you encounter is armed and uh, quite often are criminals. So it's it's a very dangerous job. Really? So, like, so tell me what are some of the most dangerous situations when you were an officer? I don't, I don't think people had any clue about that. Um, what are some of the most dangerous situations you've been in? Well, I, I, I was I was hit by a truck early in my career. A guy tried to run me over. I uh, just managed to dive out of the road. and uh, I, He was I trying was, because uh, you were trying to, uh, he was poaching and you were trying to yeah, catch him? Yeah, yeah I was in, in standing on the road uh, recording the license number of his vehicle. He jumped in his vehicle quickly, uh, started up and booted it. And I just managed to jump out of the road in time. It uh, clipped my knee and had a little sore knee for a few days, but... Uh, I was lucky in that case, and uh, lucky in most cases. I was um, I was uh, hit by a boar one time. A guy tried to take my head off, and uh, I managed to duck out of the road, and the boar exploded on my shoulder, broke my shoulder. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's it can be a wild a wild career. I I had more than my share, you know. Not, not everybody experiences things like that, and I think I had more than my share because I always went for the worst poachers. I would stay awake at night, <laughs> dreaming up ways to try and catch the worst. Is that right? And then what? What? Why is that so tricky? Like because poachers are sneaky, so you got to out sneak them, Randy Nelson. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a cat and mouse game, and uh, they're always coming up with new ways to evade you. And uh, I'd come up with other ones, particularly in my career in Cornell, uh, which was a poaching mecca for salmon poachers. So, um, so what were some of their a- tricks, and how did you bust them? Uh, most people would fish at nighttime. They sneak down to the river. Some would use trip wires that have tin cans on on wires. Some would use deadfalls, have a log ready that if you tripped the wire, the log would fall on you. Uh, it was some serious stuff. But you, you would uh, get ahead of them. I won't divulge how I would get ahead of them all the time, but I managed to. And in that case, uh, salmon poachers had a habit of trying to run away. And that's where my marathon training came in. And I just loved to chase people through the dark. <laughs> I, I literally ran down hundreds of poachers. And, and they're I just like, they're like, this is like, who is this guy? <laughs> he just wouldn't yeah, stop. I, I, if they slowed down, I'd slow down. I didn't want to catch them right away because they still have fight in them. So I would just run until they dropped from exhaustion. And never once did I have a physical confrontation with somebody that I chased. Because you just <laughs> ran them, you just ran them down. Now, now, some of the stuff is crazy in your book, Randy. Like, okay, what is a, I, I, I talked about beluga whales because my son just saw so many of them in his yep. on a canoeing. You caught like a four and a half meter beluga whale. Um, he was collecting it from a bus in Saskatchewan. What? <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty bizarre story. There are some totally bizarre stories in this book, The Wildest Hunt. I, I talked to hundreds of officers from all over North America through thousands of phone calls and emails and uh, just tried to pick the most 
interesting, most bizarre stories I could find. And, and it wasn't an actual poaching story, but a beluga whale was seized in the province of Saskatchewan by conservation officers. It was a taxidermy-mounted beluga whale, and um, that person had this old collection, and his family wanted it turned over to the authorities, and they found animals in there that were almost extinct, they found there were several hundred animals, and wow. they covered all these animals, including a beluga whale. Not not live, as you say, taxidermy. Now, now yeah, you've yeah. got other stories like turtle traffic. What's a turtle trafficking ring? Oh, there. If you if there is a rare species in the world of any form of life, whether it be tree, reptile, or or animal, somebody will poach it. And uh, turtle poaching is big. I, I, again, I didn't know a lot of this stuff. I thought I knew a lot about poaching until I wrote this book. It is absolutely astounding. But turtle poaching, that case was in the state of Oklahoma. And people would, uh, poachers would drive around early in the morning when turtles are walking across roads, scoop them up, and uh, sell them to a dealer who sold them to another dealer. And they would eventually be sold, in that case, uh, in the market in China. Live turtles are given to children as a gift that they have to take care of for, for, for their life. The li- turtle will likely outlive them. But that's just one example of, of bizarre poaching stories. What, what as I, I'm speaking to, to um, Randy Nelson, he, he first wrote Poachers, Polluters, and Politics, a fisheries officer's career. His new book is The Wildest Hunt, True Stories of Game Wardens and Poachers. What, what's the weirdest one? The one that even you said, like, oh, my God, this is just too weird. Uh there's one called the bag of snakes and it's, it's, it's probably too long to tell on here, but it is just this bizarre uh, person who collected live snakes after being, having been bitten by a rattlesnake. He said he became one with the snakes and he started buying live snakes and had them in his house in a $6 million house that he lived with his wife, who was a doctor. And in his bizarre state of mind, he, he developed, he, he was corresponding with, the top most wanted criminals in in the U.S. Like he was uh, uh, writing letters to them, and they were writing letters back to him. He was paying people like Jeffrey Dahmer and the Oklahoma bomber and, and people like that to con- converse with him through through letters. So that just bizarre stuff and hilarious stuff too, where a uh, young game warden from Oklahoma uh, through a dating site on uh, a dating site called Bumble. Uh, met up this girl who confessed to to uh, shooting a deer out of season at light at nighttime, <laughs> and on the dating site he didn't divulge he was a conservation officer and uh, he ended up getting a getting a bus there mm. and the lovely lady even asked him for a date after she had been busted. That is hilarious. So so like <laughs> like this is the the training like you have to know how to handle a lot of live animals if you're a warden. Yes, you do. Yeah, you do. It's. Uh, I was a fisher officer, so fish are a little easier to handle than grizzly bears and wolves and things like that. But you can encounter just about anything out there, and uh, particularly venomous snakes and, and things like that. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of training that has to go in for these well, people to, to take on the job. Randy Nelson, I love your stuff. The Wildest Hunt is your new book, True Stories of Game Wardens and Poachers. The profits from the book are going to the Game Warden Museum. Randy, keep running, uh, keep telling these great stories, um, and just fantastic stuff, and also your, your own book, Poachers, Polluters, and Politics. Uh, great stuff, Randy. And thanks for joining us right here on the show, and, and good luck with the new book, The Wildest Hunt. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, and I uh, hope people buy it and, and learn something about poaching and 
participate in helping stop this this rampage that is way more prevalent than anybody wants to believe. People see it, they should report it. They see it and report it. Thanks, Randy. I got to take a break. You know why? Canada might be getting a thousand kilometer vacuum tube train, huh? We talk to the CEO next. Time in your car doesn't have to be time wasted. Join the evolution of talk radio. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. I will just tell you all this, as Sam and I are here in the studio. <laughs> I'm living alone. As you know, my wife's away for two weeks. On uh, She's on the uh, ship. She's uh, chief of staff of students on ice, so she's uh, like circumnavigating part of the ocean now, the Bay of Fund or something. She's always on adventures. The kids are gone. So it's me, the dog, and the cat. And, and I'm just telling Sam, I don't know how this happens in like 48 hours, but my, the, like things are falling apart already. I don't know how as a bachelor, I've got laundry, food, guitars, dirty clothes. Like that. my wife walked in there and said, what the hell? I just left. And I'll get to that tomorrow. I just don't know what happens. This is why you need people like Sebastian Gendron, the, the co-founder and CEO of Transpod, because they're like, look, when things are falling apart, trust people like us. We have a fully electric train that can travel a thousand kilometers an hour, cost less than a plane ticket, and it will live in a vacuum tube. And we're going to do it. It's called the Fluxjet Transpod. No, the Transpod company is going to have the Fluxjet, which sounds like Back to the Future. Sebastian Gendron joins us now. I need people like you because I'm like basically falling apart here, Sebastian, as a bachelor. <laughs> Thank you very much. I mean, don't don't. I mean, we'll do our best uh, <laughs> to put that transportation system. But you do you know that uh, you, you know how quickly I, it, it falls apart at home when your family leaves and you're like, I'm just gonna like yeah, it all. <laughs> I got the same, I got the same problem. Trust me. <laughs> I know <laughs> we all do it. Okay, tell us about uh, a flux jet and and what it is. Yeah, so it's it's uh, it's kind of the vehicle we've been working on for the last uh, um, yeah seven years now, and uh, we just unveiled the first functional prototype to the public uh, last July, and uh, we're going to continue its development uh, until we reach the full scale vehicle, which is planned for twenty twenty five. What is it? So, so describe this because it sounds like a Back to the Future situation. You know what? No, it's actually fairly simple. It's a it's an aircraft without wings, so it's the size of a of a bus or a train coach, uh, but looks like an aircraft. Uh, same types of um, I would say system for uh, to control it, and uh, it's equipped. So the the fuselage itself is literally uh, similar than uh, what we uh, what we have today. Uh, when we build airplanes, and uh, we just mounted on it uh, uh, some specific uh, electromagnetic levitation and propulsion system yeah, to allow this vehicle to to reach the same speed or actually higher speed than an aircraft, slightly higher uh, than an aircraft. So it's it's existing tech, uh, and uh, where the, the the kind of the secret sauce here is really to to put the right pieces together to to keep the infrastructure cost at a decent uh, uh, 
value uh, acceptable for private investors and uh, and then yeah and, uh, we kind of embark in that journey to uh, to manufacture that vehicle and then uh, sell it maybe to Viareal uh, down the road Okay, know. so let's talk about this, because like a, a lot of people know Elon Musk and the Hyperloop, right? People talk about this. So you're saying that you've got this, let's call it, it's like a bus or a fuselage, like a plane without wings, and, yep. and it's going to reach like 550 kilometers an hour. And, and how to do that, you talk about magnets and levitation. It's actually called yep. valence flux. So how did like... Like, what do they travel on? Can you get specific? So I get inside this. I, like, is it above ground? Is it, what is this thing? Yeah, so the infrastructure is, uh, for most of the cases, will be above ground, okay? Uh, we might go underground if we have the uh, Rockies to cross or to enter any dense area in Montreal or, or Toronto. We'll have to go underground. It uh, will be probably uh uh, cheaper, and then the vehicle itself is literally the the experience uh, will be similar than uh, what we have on an aircraft. Uh, we're planning uh, three configurations. Uh, one will be economy class. Uh, the second one will be probably business class, same as what we have on an aircraft. We're also working to have a similar configuration with a cheaper ticket price uh, than what we have on a subway, like uh, having people standing and some sitting as well. Um, I want to also uh, mention the fact that we're not developing a, a magnetic gun with an insane uh, acceleration. Uh, the acceleration is similar to uh, what we have on the subway, so it's going to take, what, 50K uh, to, uh, to reach uh, top speed, and then the same uh, to decelerate. So, so 50K um, to reach, yeah. and then after 50K, it's going to reach... The, the speed yeah, of a plane, but so so something yeah. that's traveling above ground, like how dangerous is that above ground uh, traveling yeah, five hundred so, kilometers an hour? Yeah, so uh, let's let's uh, step back a little bit. So the the system itself, um, so the vehicle uh, is in a vacuum, a low pressure environment. Okay, so in a tube, so the tube protects the vehicle from the. Uh, uh, weather condition outside. So it's a guided system, the same way uh, we experience it on a on a subway. Okay. So uh, compared to an airplane, uh, you don't have to worry about snowstorm or heavy rains and and all that, uh, even crossings and so on. So it's actually uh, safer than existing mode uh, of transportation. It's also uh, fully automated. Uh, so it's uh, computer controlled. At that speed, you can't rely on the, there is no driver. You can't rely on the uh, human brain uh, to to control uh, such a vehicle. So it really with many redundant systems, and then um, yeah, with a smooth acceleration, uh, passengers' comfort is is kind of critical as well. And um, yeah, down the road, the just to go back on the safety aspect. Uh, on an airplane, you are flying at 30,000 feet, and when you have uh, any pressurized uh, issues, usually it doesn't end up uh, uh, well. Right. Where in our case, since we are at uh, ground level, I would say, when I say above ground, it's like any... Um, yeah. Uh, if you are in uh, in Toronto, you have the UP Express, which is similar to that. In Montreal, you have the La Caisse from Quebec building that REM. So it's an elevated kind of a system the same way we see it uh, everywhere. 
And uh, if we have a pressurized problem, we can repressurize the tube in 15 seconds. So one five, then you are at the uh, right. atmospheric so, pressure, so, so, and so, people so just, can evacuate. I just have a, one quick question. So if this thing gets built, like let's say it would go from Toronto to Montreal or Calgary to Vancouver yeah. or, or, or something, um, how long, for example, would a, a Montreal-Toronto trip take? So the, the best reference point is to use the time it takes uh, by flight. So Toronto, Montreal, you'll need one hour to do the trip. Instead of five hours. (laughs) By train or instead and without all the headaches about those securities checks and so on. So really the same, uh, as easy as it is uh, to take a train, but uh, as fast as it is when you fly. Well, uh, listen, if you want to compare to flying, just just tell everyone to arrive three hours early, lose their luggage and overcharge them. And then you then you really got to come. Uh, listen, Sebastian Gentron, co-founder and CEO of Transpod. Uh, very cool. You've secured five hundred five hundred and fifty million dollars in financing. Good luck. I will ride this anytime you want, Sebastian. I'm dying to get the flux jet vehicle. Sounds very cool. Thank you for joining us. Please drop by again, and um, I really appreciate you dropping by. And folks, thank you for listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Check out the podcast on the iHeartRadio app.